listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the book of Acts entitled, The Birth of the Church. Would you turn with me in your Bible today, though, to Acts chapter 2? And I want to really read two passages because they're somewhat connected, and so you're going to need a little bit of physical dexterity here today. I want to read verses 44 through 47 in chapter 2, and then after we do that, to pick the, it up in chapter 4, verse 32, where it talks about the unique lifestyle that the church adapted in the first church in Jerusalem. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 44, it says, Now all who believed together were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And then again in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, rustle of pages, rustle of pages, okay. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. And there was no needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue to look to your word for insight and understanding with how we should live our lives in this present world, we ask, God, that your spirit would give us insight and comprehension, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would also search out those particulars in every one of our hearts that needs to be touched by you. That, God, we want to be people who don't not only know your word, but we seek to live it. And so, God, we pray for that grace. We pray for that help and encouragement. As we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's an old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? But the answer isn't really all that mysterious, really, when you think about it, because obviously the chicken came first, because you cannot have an egg without a chicken, but you can certainly have a chicken without an egg. But what's really at the heart of this question is really the issue of origins of life itself. Uh, Did we self-create or have we been created by God? Those are really the two critical issues because on the one hand, if we are self-created, then we are, as Hemley said, the, the captain of our own fates, the master of our, or captain of our own life and our own master of our own souls. We have no regard or dependency upon anyone else besides ourselves, and we can determine what the future looks like. On the other hand, if I'm God-created, that means my life is created for a purpose, a purpose greater than my own selfish ambition or desires, but a purpose which is defined by God. And part of the journey of life, therefore, becomes discovering what particular purpose or way has God created me to live for him and to serve him and to follow after him. Though some people look at a question like this as being somewhat esoteric and unnecessary, in fact, 
It's very important because when we look at the history of mankind, if we stop, start with Eve and look forward, we find that it's always been the desire of man to control his world rather than to be controlled. We want to be independent of God rather than dependent upon him. We want to lead rather than be those who have to follow after God's laws and his standards. So that even when Christianity, within Christianity, many through the years have sought to improve on the Bible's message, and rather than simply conforming and submitting to what it teaches, they've sought to rewrite it or reinterpret it, as they often say, through a new, more sophisticated and advanced lens. Because there is the kind of chronological arrogance in cultures throughout history, and especially in our own time, to look at ancient peoples as being primitive and unsophisticated and unlike us, and yet the more the school of archaeology and social archaeology develops its insights into the ancient world, the more we realize that in some ways they displayed advancements of intellect and development that even today we can't quite comprehend. Most people are unaware that when we look at the pyramids in Egypt, we still don't know how they did it. There's a lot of conjectures and ideas of how they built them, but it's such an amazing thing, such a monstrous accomplishment with such exacting specifications and measurements. We sit back and say, how did primitive people do these kind of things without the sophisticated technological advances that we have today? And yet I wonder, how technologically advanced are we today? How many of us even know how to balance our checkbook <laughs> or write a budget? We, in a very real way, have kind of grown very large in certain areas. I mean, we can carry the day in Fortnite, but we can't figure out how to make a living. And so we find that this conundrum that we're caught up in is really some, not only something of our own making, but it's when we disconnect ourselves from what Scripture would refer to as even ancient wisdom and think that somehow because we are more viral or vibrant that we are more advanced than ancient peoples. But many times the wisdom of age is critical to understanding how to navigate our life. As George Santianas, the famous uh, uh, Spanish philosopher, once wrote that well-known quote, men who don't learn the lessons of history are condemned to repeat them. And we find that that is so true, so scarily true, that as I look at our culture today where we don't really study history anymore, we study global cl climate change and global warming, but we don't study history or sociology or government and instead we find a whole generation has no concept of where they've come or what lessons history has taught us through the centuries. And there we're guaranteed that we will therefore repeat the same tragic errors of our forefathers from ages past. But one of the things we find is a consequence of men always trying to reinterpret God's will or nature or plan, we end up with many different religions in the world and many variations within every religion. What I find so fascinating is the claims of various religious groups. For example, the Muslim community claims that they're kind of this monolithic whole that all believe the same thing. And yet one of the things we find in Islam today is there are about 150 different sects of Islam many of them dedicated to killing the others for being heretics. 
So that one of the things that we have trouble understanding in our foreign policy is that when you have Sunni Muslims and Shia Muslims and Sufi Muslims, they do not all see the world through the same lens and have been dedicated for centuries to killing one another. And so we find even with Judaism, in the time of Jesus, there was over 200 different sects of Jews with all different interpretations. And then we come to Hinduism, which has thousands of different sects because Hinduism actually has no set of core beliefs. So that if you are a Hindu, you're pretty much free to believe anything you want. We say sometimes, it sounds like hyperbole, that the Hindus have three million gods. But that's what they themselves say because they make a God of just about everything. And so we find, again, there's huge variations, even pseudo-Christian groups like the Mormons who often criticize the denominationalism that exists in the church. They come to your door, those nice young men in white shirts and nice ties, and they knock there saying, well, you know, we want to tell you about the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, blah, 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 blah. They'll say, isn't it terrible how all the churches are divided into all these denominations? This, this is part and parcel of Joseph Smith's personal testimony when uh, Boney Maroney, the angel, appeared to him and revealed to him the, the Book of Mormon and all the rest of that, which, by the way, I find fascinating because there's not a single Mormon doctrine taken from the Book of Mormon. Most people aren't aware of that. You read the Book of Mormon, you won't find any Mormon doctrine. I digress, but nonetheless... But they'll talk about how, isn't it terrible how they have all these different denominations, and yet there are 11 different denominations today within the Mormon church, many of them holding some pretty bizarre beliefs. So it's not surprising that after 2,000 years, Christianity also has multiple denominations. I mean, beginning with Roman Catholicism, which in itself has 23 different rites within its structure. In other words, not all Roman Catholics are Roman Catholics. And I've talked to Roman Catholics, and I say, well, the Roman church teaches this and that. And they say, well, I don't believe that. And I say, that's only because you're not a good Catholic. And that's really true for most Catholics. Most Catholics really don't know what their own theolo theological foundations are. And, and, you know, they don't realize that Jesus was born without sin because Mary had no sin, the immaculate conception, that Mary had to become perfect so that she could bear a child who was without sin. And we'd ask the question, if she was perfect, why did she need to bear a child? Why couldn't she have been crucified for our sins? Well, I don't want to trouble your minds with those kind of thoughts. But you have Eastern Orthodoxy, and you have Oriental Orthodoxy, you have Anglicanism, and you have Protestantism, and under each of these headings, you have numerous every groups. Many of them, because we are a Protestant offshoot, understand this because we have basically subdivisions in, in today, Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Baptist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Reformed, Deformed, and Uninformed. You know, it's just, we've got them all. And this is not to say that this was God's intent because it becomes evident that the one true God's design and desire as expressed by Jesus in John 17, 20 was, he says, I pray for those who will believe in me that they may be one father as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity. Let the world know that you sent and to let the world know that you sent me. Now the problem is, is we often think of that unity in structural and organizational terms. And so forever the church has been endeavoring to kind of get everybody in a circle and say kumbaya and let's love each other. And yet the reality is that 
the unity that we have is not a unity of the flesh, it's a unity of the spirit. And that important distinction is critical because if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of what bumper sticker you worship under, the truth of the matter is that we are one in Christ. We are unified in our faith in that regard. So clearly Jesus' prayer, though, in the very beginning was answered. When we look at the church history, as we just read a moment ago, it says, all who believed were together. They continued daily with one accord, one in heart and mind. And yet within a decade of that, that unity began to fracture and fall apart. I mean, it began with distortions of the gospel message. In chapter 15 of the book of Acts, we read about a group of individuals whom we have in modern times identified as, we call them Judaizers. And it says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch, which is a city in in modern day uh, Turkey today. It was a Greek city at the time. And they were teaching the brothers, who were mainly Gentile converts, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So it wasn't enough to ask Christ into your heart and be born again. It wasn't enough to be baptized into the faith. It wasn't even enough to be worshiping in a church. You also had to become a good Jew as well as becoming a good Christian. And this was the first real doctrinal schism that came into church. We find that Barnabas and Paul were so outraged that they brought it up before the council of the church in Jerusalem, the very first council, and the council ruled that no such obligations should be placed upon non-Jewish believers, but that rather they should not engage anything related to idolatry. But Paul said later on, writing on this whole topic in Galatians 1.7, he says, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ by, he goes on to say, presenting something that is not the gospel at all. Because the gospel of Christ is we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, but what they're teaching is you're saved by circumcision of your own flesh by someone else's hands. In other words, am I saved by a work that I do or am I saved by the gift of God? Well, that point has been a point of contention since the earliest times because there's something in human nature that desires to be able to do something to prove that we are worthy of God's love. And it's hard to accept that the Bible very clearly says there is nothing. There is nothing that you can do. There's nothing that God looks at in you and says, you know, I find you irresistible and therefore I'm going to let you come into heaven. Now, we grow up in families, let's be honest, where some kids are liked by some parents more than the other. Nobody wants to admit, I love you all the same, but I want to spend time with this one. You know, and usually it's the one who simply has the same kind of problems that you do, and you identify with them. But the reality is, we live in a world marked by favoritism, marked by preferential treatments. I mean, it's, it's incumbent in, in human society, and it's so normal to us that to think that God wouldn't do that really kind of beggars our imagination. That God could simply look at me, could look at you and say, I love you with all of the love that there is in all of eternity, exactly as I love everyone else. Well, again, we sit back and say, how can God love everybody, much less less everybody the same? And the answer is really quite simple. That comes with being God. God has a capacity to do things that I can't even comprehend or imagine. 
And so it becomes critically important for us to understand that the gospel of grace is counterintuitive. It runs counter to our way of thinking and looking at things. And when we begin to realize that all I can do is accept by faith God's commitment and promise that he loves me, and that's the basis of my salvation, is one of the critical foundations, cornerstones of the Christian faith. Christ died while I was still dead in my trespasses and sins. And Paul said to the Galatians, having been saved in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? And so this whole idea of somehow I'm going to raise my my basic value in the eyes of God by becoming uh, more perfect or behaving in some way that somehow God would find irresistible is really a false theology, even though it's something that's quite comfortable with our manner of thinking. One of the hardest things I find for myself and anybody else is that when things become customary and comfortable in terms of how the world functions and how I think about the world, and then God presents me with a truth that is diametric to it, I have trouble understanding and accepting that. Well, this was, again, one of the most preliminary issues. And throughout the history, when you study all the various false theologies that have come into the church and been kicked out of the church, they all have at their basis the same idea that there's something that you need to do in order to qualify for heaven. There's something that you need to do. It's incumbent upon your behavior. Now, Paul knew that people would respond by saying, well, then you're giving permission to do people to do anything they want, which is, again, not true at all. God's answer is really simple. If you truly know me, then you'll keep my commandments. But not because there's a list of rules that you keep plastered on the wall of your bedroom or in your living room or across the front of your TV or you carry it within your notebook, always saying, do this and do that. I remember when I was first a Christian, I started reading through the New Testament for the first time, and I came to the the book of Ephesians, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write down everything I'm supposed to do on one side, and the other side, I'm going to put everything I'm not supposed to do, and I'm going to begin to memorize all the rules so that I can keep them in my head, make sure I don't violate any of the rules. You know what the end result was? The list got so long, I gave up. I realized (laughs) I can't do this, which is kind of ironic because I was reading the book of Ephesians where he talks about being saved by faith, by the grace of God and by faith in Christ, not by works. And yet even as I'm reading it, I'm writing down a list of works that I'm trying to live up to in order to be loved by God. Well, sadly to say, the early church became marked by schisms and strife and divisions. We act today when those things arise amongst us as if there's something unusual happening. No, that's what human nature does. Human nature, it it gravitates towards schismatic things, to to, uh, uh, controversies and divisions and strife. In fact, Paul writing to the Corinthians said, some from Chloe's house have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Can you believe that? Christians with quarrels? (laughs) That's one thing I'm really happy about, that my wife and I are going to celebrate our our 49th next week, and uh, we've never quarreled. No, we went right past that. We went to war. (laughs) Anyway, he says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, or that is Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. But Paul later asked them in the third chapter of that same letter, he says, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Who after all is Apollos? Who after all is Paul? 
only servants through whom you came to believe. It's amazing how we tend to do this, right? We, we pick sides. We pick favorites. We do it with, one of the things that attracts men's sports is that you've got the good teams like the Warriors and the bad teams like the Raptors. You know, and it's easy to make those kind of distinctions right away. But it became so bad that Paul warned the church leaders in chapter 20 as he's leaving for Jerusalem for the last time from the city of Ephesus. He says, he warns them, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. They'll distort the truth. It's interesting. He doesn't say they'll reject the truth. They'll just adjust the truth because it'll make it more appealing and people will want to follow after them. Believe me, that is a real temptation for anybody who stands in a place like this. Because, you know, I'm like you. I want people to like me and think well of me. I, I like people to call me blessed when I walk by and, you know, say, here, rabbi, sit in the higher seat. You know, I, I mean, I, I, you know, believe me. Bump me to first class. I love you. I give you a dispensation of grace. <laughs> but the simple fact is that we have a higher responsibility, and that's to Hold the form, Paul said, of sound doctrine. And writing to Timothy in his second letter, he said, don't let the form that has been given to you be altered and adjusted because of changes in culture and time. And we see that, that effect so powerfully in the age in which we live. Not only because there are so many people who want to adjust the theology to fit their lifestyle, but the fact of the matter is we have such a pervasive media digital presence in our life that we can become pounded into submission or so overwhelmed by the great lie, as, as Hitler called it, or Goebbels called it. If you say a lie long enough and loud enough, people will believe that it's true. And we live in such a time where we are pummeled by information oftentimes, which I can't remember who came up with the phrase, but somebody called it fake news or something like that. <laughs> so that when somebody comes up and asks me why there are so many different denominations, my answer often surprises them. Success. Success. That's our greatest weakness. You see, whenever the gospel has been widely received by a group of people, they have prospered for two very simple reasons. Number one, because they have believed in the truth, and truth equals reality. You see, if you believe something that's not true, you're going to begin to have problems down the road because what you believe to be true doesn't really line up with the real world. We know that something is true when it's real. So that when I say, why do I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life? Because when I believed that with all of my heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, my life began to work better. Relationships got better. My attitude got better. Uh, my interaction with the world around me changed dramatically because I started looking at him and I found that if I simply believe that he is the truth and I follow him, then the real world will begin to align with what I am dealing with, or I should say oppositely, I begin to align myself to what is real and true. So that we live in an age where people want to say, well, nobody's really a sinner, or there's no such thing as real evil. And when you believe something like that, how do you explain 
evil in the world? How do you explain uh, jihadism and 9-11 and, and on and on it goes that you realize there's some really, really bad stuff. If we don't call it evil, what are we going to call it? A bad day? You know, it, the fact is there is just real evil in the world. And when the Bible tells me that's not only real evil, but there is a diabolical character that we call devil and Satan and Lucifer, who is really the leader of this move against mankind and against all that is good and holy. And that my adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. When I begin to understand that, I stop relying upon my own strength, my own ability, and I begin to pray because I realized that the enemy is far greater in his native ability than I am in mine. And I began to realize that his native language, as Jesus put it, is to lie. And he lies powerfully because, as I said last week, Satan doesn't have to overwhelm you with a tsunami of evil to lead you astray. All he has to do is get you to accept an idea that's not true. And then our imagination will pick up and carry that forward. All I've got to do is let him put an idea into my mind. And that's why we talked about last week. The, the call of God is to bring my thoughts into the captivity of Christ. Which means I begin to run my thoughts through the word of God and let it filter out those things that are true and those things that are not true. And I am not suggesting that that is an easy process. I wrestle often with what is flowing through my mind and what I see in the word of God. But when I begin to put those things in the face of the scriptures and say, God, this is what I'm feeling, and God says, and that feeling is a lie and deception, then I can repent of that, reject it, and begin to believe those things and repeat to myself those things that are true. This is one of the simple reasons why I tell people, read your Bibles every day. Read them often and frequently. Read it before you need it. Because I find that God will speak into your life things that you don't even know you need until that moment arises. But when you preloaded, you're already to fire against the darts of the enemy. But the simple fact is that we begin to look at ourselves not through the lens of our childhood or our culture or any other experience that we happen to have at any moment of time. We begin to look at our life through the lens of God's truth. And that matches reality and your life begins to be prospered. But secondly, faith equals blessing. God said so much when he, told, uh, when he spoke to uh, Eli, the, the uh, backslidden prophet or uh, priest. He says, those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. You know, I have a prayer that I pray for our leaders in our government. It's a very simple prayer. I pray, God, that every time they do something that honors you, that you will bless them. And every time they do something that disdains you, they'll be despised. <laughs> because that's a simple reality, is God says, I will honor those who honor me. And when we begin to honor God, he says, I will, as a consequence, bring my blessing upon your life. Sometimes I look at my life, my wife and I, when we begin to pray, and every morning I start a prayer time by thanking God for everything he's done that I can think of at the moment, because I realize that God has brought such goodness and grace into our life. Oh, we've had a lot of heartache and disappointment and loss, just like you have. But somehow, even the bad things, God works together for the good. That they, even the crappy things become fertilizer for the flowers God wants to grow in your life. If I can put it in a horticultural way. 
Yet as the church prospers, what happens is that men of selfish ambition join themselves to it. In fact, Jesus gave an interesting parable, the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew 13. He said this, even though the mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Oftentimes, birds are a symbol of evil. And many believe that what Jesus was saying is as the church grows and prospers, you're going to find a lot of those noxious crows are going to settle in the branches. And you're going to find within the church, there are going to be those who do not love the truth, but simply see it as a pathway for personal advancement and power. Historically, the more powerful and controlling the church has become over a culture, the more that kind of corruption has entered in and destroyed the very fabric of the faith. It was Christian historian Andrew Walls who observed that it is success, he said, that most often sabotages the church. He said, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth, it ceases to be a pilgrimage. The radical message of sin, grace, and the cross become muted or even lost. It starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion with respectable people who try to be good and eventually becomes virtually dormant. Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. So that the most dangerous place we can end up is when we are the most influential part of a culture. That we forget that it was by grace. We forget that we are sinners. It's this very loss of vulnerability and humility that robs us of our spiritual vitality. In my weakness, Jesus, Paul said, is where my strength is found because I'm relying upon God rather than relying upon myself. It's in my weakness when I say, God, I don't know the right decision, but God, I trust you to guide and lead me into it, that we find ourselves making wise and clear decisions because our dependence is not upon ourselves, but upon him. But it's also this time when the church becomes less than what God has wanted it to be, that there often follows an awakening amongst the godly. Bringing reform into the church in an effort to return it to a simpler biblical church as opposed to a powerful social entity. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th, 15th, and 16th century was just such that kind of event that began with really, ironically, a rediscovery of the Bible. The theme of the Reformation was sola scriptura. In other words, the Bible alone. The Bible is the ultimate authority. The authority isn't with the Pope, it isn't with the cardinals, it isn't with the bishop, it isn't with the priest, it isn't even with the local pastor. The authority of, of God is held in his word, and it's his word that ultimately we answer to. We don't answer to men. Ultimately, we answer to God, and his word is the sole authority that we submit our life to. That's why men like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox and Wycliffe and Tyndale and legions of others attempted first to reform the church, to bring it back to its biblical roots, but basically, rather than being able to be allowed to change it from within, they were kicked out 
And they formed many of the new movements that we find throughout history. In a way, the blood of these martyrs became the seeds of a new and fresh and vital move of God. And what it produced were new movements like Lutheranism or Methodism or Presbyterianism or Puritanism and on and on it goes. And yet here's the ironic part of it all. Given enough time and success, each of those movements began to show the same hardening of the arteries that previous movements had. Before long, these same movements, as they became successful, became equally lifeless as the ones that they had left from. As uh, one... uh, commentator observed, he said they were preserving the, the, the appearance of Christianity, yet contradicting its essence. A term we use to describe that is called dead orthodoxy. Dead orthodoxy means you know all the right answers. You take the Bible quiz, you're going to get all the questions right, but it never finds its way into actually being applied to your daily life. I, I know the Bible says, love my enemies, but <laughs> you've got to be kidding He certainly couldn't mean that person. Even though the Bible says, you know, I should forgive everyone, but really, seriously, you expect me to forgive what they did? That's called dead orthodoxy. We know all the right answers, but we never allow it to infect our lives. And that's always the greater difference. That's always the greater danger. It's a thing that James warned about, that we hear the word, but we don't do the word. That's Dead orthodoxy. Our faith is orthodox, but it's dead. Or I love the way that he he put it in Revelations 3.1 when Jesus spoke about the church of Sardis and he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You have a reputation of being alive. It was a hundred years ago that a, a theologian author by the name of Vance Habner, right around 1920 or so, Uh, identified what he called a a cycle of the church that it repeats over and over again. I call it the cycle from relevance to irrelevance, from revival to irrelevance, the cycle that we tend to go through over and over again. And he basically said that every great movement of God starts with a man, that God finds a man who is wholly sold out and fully devoted to him, and God pours himself into that man so that he can reach his generation. In fact, it was... The writer of Chronicles who told us in chapter 16 of 2 Chronicles that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. It's not like God simply chooses to work through certain individuals because they're more gifted or more talented. As my pastor used to always say, God is not interested in your ability. He's interested in your availability. These are people who are available to God. They're they're living away and saying, God, I will be what you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. They're echoing Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 6. He says, here am I, Lord. Send me. They have that openness of God where they surrender the entirety of their life and say, Lord, I want to be whatever you want me to be. Pleasing you is what pleases me the most. that God often is going to and fro across the face of the earth, even in this moment looking through this room and saying, who is it that has that kind of surrender? And before you're too quick to think, well, that obviously applies to me, take the most precious thing in your life and consider giving it up, surrendering it to God, letting God take it from you. And right away our mind begins to lock up its gears 
well, I'll do whatever the Lord wants except that. But oftentimes the price that God requires is very high. So that when Abraham put his son Isaac on the altar, even though God spared Isaac and provided a substitute, God said to Abraham, now I know what is in your heart. When he called him to give up the most precious thing that he had, now I know what you have in your heart. This is why it's so hard to find that individual, that man or woman who is willing to say, here am I, because it's only when we realize that that includes everything that we have. Let me tell you something. When I was first saved, I was young, I stupid, had absolutely no future, and everything I had was given to me by my parents. I gave it all up to the Lord. Now, as I am a grandfather and praying that I'll live long enough to become a great-grandfather, because I've never been really great at anything, I got a lot of stuff I don't want God to touch. Don't touch my health. Don't touch my family. Don't touch my possessions. Oh, if you know, you want to use them, you can, but make sure you bring them back in good condition. <laughs> this is why it's so hard to find a man or a woman who said, Lord, whatever you want, your will be done. But when, you, when God finds those people and he pours himself into them, they kind of catch fire and everybody who gets around them begins to get caught with that same fire. And what you suddenly find is this man has grown into this movement of many men and many women who are impassioned with a mission to reach their generation for Christ. Yet over time, very subtly, that movement develops a methodology, a distinct way of doing things and usually it's an emphasis upon something that you realize was de-emphasized in past generations. And so you're going to really emphasize it, but oftentimes you emphasize it to the exclusion of everything else. This thing becomes your distinction, your identity, your distinct way of doing things. It, and it starts very incidentally, but after a while it becomes incumbent. But I realize even in our own movement, my own experience. I remember that when we first got involved with Calvary, Calvary was this loose association of ex-hippies and general yahoos, and uh, we just didn't know much. We just loved Jesus and wanted to tell people about him, and the next thing we know, you know, I've often said I never set out to be a pastor. In fact, I was a pastor about 10 years before I realized I was one. I just found myself doing things that pastors do, like studying and reading and teaching and communicating the gospel and sharing the gospel with unsaved people. I, I just was doing that because I was a Christian, not because I wanted to be a pastor. In fact, I wrestled for years with people saying, hey, pastor, I'd look around the room to see who they were talking to. But over time, people began to say things like, well, that's not very Calvary-like, or he's not a real Calvary chapel. And suddenly we had this metric that we were using on people to determine where they were in the pecking order. Or we'd look at one church and say, well, yeah, it's a pretty good church, but they're not a Calvary. That was in many ways the beginning of the end. Our preferences become sacred. We sanctify our preferences. We say subtly to ourselves, our way is better. 
No, our way is best. And then eventually you're saying our way is the only way. And you look down upon people who might approach things differently. You see, eventually methodology becomes more important than the message itself. How we do it matters more than what we do. So that I, as a Calvary Chapel, I want to be faithful to teach the Word of God, but yet I don't want to teach it in a way that's going to offend people. You know I avoid that at all cost. (laughs) And I don't do it because I'm courageous or bold. I'm just real stupid. But you see, efficiency starts replacing true ministry. A movement becomes kind of machine-like afterwards, and machines are lifeless, heartless, self-sufficient, and self-perpetuating. You see, when a ministry reaches the stage of being a machine, it only exists to keep itself going. It's too big to fail. And suddenly, our efforts primarily are how do we support and perpetuate what we do so that other people see our successes. Well, the last thing that happens is the machine becomes a monument. (laughs) Its history is more important than its future. We say things like, remember when? For some of us who go way back in in the Calvary Chapel history, we'll we'll say things, remember back in the tent? Because that's what we met in, the circus tent. (laughs) And it was a real circus. (laughs) We worry about our legacy rather than the life that we're living. Our traditions become more important than even truth. And we tend to conform our truth to the traditions. You see, one can trace the path from movement to monument by simply noting the role that Scripture plays in the lives of people. Is the scriptures more important or has it become less important? Over time, biblical truth is replaced by traditions. Ritual is more important than righteousness. Power is more important than prayer. Myths and religious folklore displace history and facts. That mysticism is sought instead of the mystery of godliness. And once movements reach that monument stage, they have their own kind of momentum. They acquire people of prominence. They acquire power and possessions and properties. I mean, even politicians begin to cater to them. They are no longer dependent upon the spirit of truth or the spirit of God. And there are boatloads of examples. Let me, let me just run headfold into this minefield that always is guaranteed to get plenty of email. (laughs) But you see, I see a Lutheranism in many places today that Martin Luther would not even recognize. I see a Methodism that it would be unrecognizable to to the Wesleys, John and Charles. Maybe most egregiously, I look at Roman Catholicism, which I believe Peter would never have associated with, even though they have a very impressive bronze statue of him in the Vatican, in St. Peter's Cathedral. I've been there when people have lined up for hours just to have a chance to rub the foot of Peter. They've rubbed it so much now they won't let you do anymore because his foot was disappearing. (laughs) But I saw a level of idol worship at the Vatican the three times I've been there 
that I can only compare to what I saw in the temples of India. They were very similar, right down to the prayer beads. You see, still monuments aren't something that really dies easily. Even though they may become more pagan than Christian in their outward expressions, they just seem to be able to just go on and on and on. But what they do is they are struggling to remain relevant, so they reinvent themselves. They wrap their petrified carcasses with a new skin. That materialism will wrap itself in a prosperity gospel, or sensationalism will wrap itself in charismania, or militantism will wrap itself in exceptionalism. Dead orthodoxy will wrap itself in a lifeless theology that never serves nor makes any sacrifices, just spends all its time measuring other people and criticizing them for not being as circumspect as they are. But I think maybe the most ironic and and tragic fake skin I see today is the one being adapted by the Roman church called Marxism. Now, Marxism is often referred to as socialism or communism, but the the true name for it is Marxism because it was founded and and developed, the idea was formed by a guy named Karl Marx. Karl Marx was an interesting guy. I mean, he was raised in a Christian home. He learned the Bible. In fact, we have records of essays that he wrote as a young student about biblical theology, which were quite precise and exact in their details. But somehow the gospel got into his head, but it never made that 18-inch journey to his heart. So that as an adult, he decided that the answer to the pernicious problems of poverty and justice, which in his mind, the church was running away from, not addressing. It didn't concern itself with the plight of the poor. And so he decided that because the church wasn't doing it, the church therefore wasn't relevant and Christianity wasn't relevant. Like so many of us, before we got saved, I felt Christianity was an empty suit, not worth my time. And so he came up with an ideology. Now, ideology is a, it means the study of an idea. And what I find so interesting is that his idea was to look at what the church in the first century did voluntarily, as we read today, and make it mandatory by government edict. You see, he saw that the church started with all things in common, hence the term communism. That they sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as they had anyone had need. So they decided, he decided that we should take everybody's stuff and redistribute it equally. And that goes on to say no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had with the government. At least that's how he saw it. The government would be the true arbiter. These, this, and this was a wholly untried idea. It's not like he created this little movement saying, let's see how this works, this, this kind of pure egalitarian communalism. Let's see how that works in real life. Now, I have a different perspective. When I first got saved, I joined a Christian commune where everybody shared everything equally down to your underwear. And let me tell you how that worked. Over time, 
Some people became more equal than others. People who were in decision-making positions suddenly had a greater need for stuff that they determined that I did not need. And suddenly the schism between those who govern and those who serve. It's interesting, I mean, that from my experience, because when, when Marx and Engels take this untried idea based upon a misinterpretation of a biblical text and created the Communist Manifesto, which is a moral guidance for communism, and Das Kapital, which is the economic side of his argument. But I think if he had only really read his Bible more carefully, he would have understood, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. and That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, what he didn't understand was he was looking at a church which no longer had the vitality of a spirit-filled life. And so its conscience was not pricked by the hardships around it and instead was only committed to the furtherance of the institution and the organization. It's not surprising that Marxism has been a, a dismal failure Everywhere it has been tried, it has been led to massive and unsurvivable poverty and the death of hundreds of millions of people who were forced to give up their properties <laughs> in order to serve the greater interests of the state. Today, there are probably, or in history, there's been like 49 countries that have embraced communism and all of them, the ones that have survived have moved away from it into certain modified forms, or they've gone out of business as the Soviet Union did. You would assume today that learned men would have nothing to do with this diabolical ideology. <laughs> Yet today on our campuses, we find professors and teachers who are filled with this ideology and promote it. Governments and politicians, especially in this last this upcoming race, are running so far into the Marxist ideal where you're promised everything and you don't have to pay for anything. I mean, take, for example, something like student loans. We've got a real crisis in this country. $1.5 trillion is owed by many of you in this room. My physical therapist told me, he's got his doctorate degree in physical therapy. You know what he told me? He said, I have one of my loans that I will not live long enough to pay off. This is a terrible, terrible travesty. So what we need to do is just forgive all those loans. That's a wonderful idea. <laughs> Can you pick up my mortgage while you're doing that too? <laughs> Not realizing that your parents and your grandparents have retirement funds that are, are the things that they use to fund your student loans. And so if we forgive those debts, suddenly you're strapped with supporting your parents and grandparents in their old age because their retirement funds are gone. Because after all, we just forgave all debts. By forgiving all debts, what we also do is forgive all, or forget all savings. And you see, what that's called in, in, in communist Marxist theology is redistribution of wealth. And what's really frightening is that even amongst religious leaders today, it started with a liberal Protestant denominations, but now has worked its way right into the very centers of power within the Vatican. 
that seek to convince naive young people to embrace a Marxist ideal despite its long, bloody record of failure. In fact, most notably was uh, Pope Francis' most recent encyclical when he really essentially calls for the, the redistribution of wealth, uh, one global government, uh, and basically uh, uh, laws that are binding upon every nation equally and that if a nation doesn't comply, then they should be boycotted and so forth and so on. Uh, I read all 175 pages of it yesterday. Fascinating reading. took a very long time to say things that could have been stated very clearly and bluntly if it wasn't disguised by a lot of verbiage and a lot of misinterpretation and twisting of scripture. Now, I don't have anything personally against Pope Francis. I think he's probably a pretty nice guy. I certainly say he's a lot better than a lot of the characters they have around there. You know, it's, we talk about the sex scandals in the Roman Catholic Church. Do you know that it's commonly believed that up to 80% of the priests in the Vatican are homosexuals? And it's interesting that the church has been relatively silent on that sin for a long time. Oh, did I call it sin? I'm sorry. I meant to say lifestyle. But most people don't realize that Pope Francis is an avowed Marxist. I mean, he, he, you just, he's clearly a Marxist. All of the men who are surrounding him in, from the Council of, of, of Cardinals and, and the head of the Jesuits and all these different, they're all Marxists. I mean, they're not just possibly Marxists. They're, they're avowed Marxists. They're very clear. In fact, the head of the Jesuit order, which was the order from which Francis came from, he himself was a Jesuit. The Jesuit order literally states that it is seeking to fulfill the Marxist ideals in the world. Because what they believe is not in a second coming of Christ who will establish his millennial kingdom as the Bible teaches. They say, oh, all that's figurative. We have the responsibility of the church to establish the kingdom of God on earth through our own efforts. It's the same ideal of the communists, the Marxists, the socialists. We'll create this Edenic reality because we'll all have all things in common and everything will be equal. Now, I think life should be fair, but life has never been equal. You know why I know it's not equal? Because I watched Steph Curry play basketball. <laughs> and believe me, nobody can bear to watch me play basketball. It's too painful and embarrassing for them. There he goes, making a fool of himself again. But the head of the Jesuits, a guy that Francis appointed after he became Pope, a guy named Father Arturo Sosa Abascal, Abascal. he is famously known for an article he wrote called Marxist Meditation of the Christian Faith. And he said, the church should understand the existence of Christians who simultaneously call themselves Marxists. They're Christians, but they call themselves Marxists and commit themselves to the transformation of the capitalist society into a socialist society. I mean, it's very, very clear. He's, you don't even have to parse anything out to find out what he's saying. I mean, he says it right out there. He even goes on to say, you need to start by reflecting on what exactly Jesus said. I believe that. The words of Jesus, 
And this is where it begins to get complicated because the words of Jesus have to, first of all, be contextualized. They're expressed in a certain language and in a precise environment, and they're addressed to someone specific. And over the last centuries, there has been a great blossoming of studies that seek to understand exactly what Jesus meant to say, not what he said, but what he meant to say, and he's here to tell us. He says, the church is not a piece of reinforced concrete. I don't know why God called it the gospel a foundation, <laughs> because obviously it's not a foundation. He says, it has changed. Doctrine is a word that I don't like very much. It brings with it the image of the hardness of stone. Instead, the human reality is much more nuanced. It's never black or white. It is in continual development so that for Sosa, the church is always evolving and changing and growing and adjusting itself to the changing realities of the world in which we live. So that when it's all said and done, and I've said this many before in our prophecy updates, that <laughs> climate change, or as it used to be called, global warming, is really nothing more than a device to frighten people into embracing a socialist reality for the world. So the last thing I'd just like to say is, isn't that what Acts chapter 2 and 4 is saying to us? Well, there's a very important distinction to make here. When we read about, read these passages in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we find that the cause was Christ. And the effect of Christ was an unbounded generosity and a sharing of self. It wasn't an ideological position. There's a big difference between moved by the Spirit of God and moved by an ideological set of beliefs. Those are not the same thing. They were moved by God. No, nobody sat down and said, okay, hey, I got a great new idea. We'll, we'll form this organization, we'll call the church, and then what we'll do is make everybody sell everything they have and we'll give it to the apostles and, and they'll divide it equally as each person has need. No. This was something that nobody requested. Nobody, in fact, one of the things we need secondly to keep in mind is that sharing was something that came out of their hearts. It was their idea. It was never commanded by God. Nowhere in the scriptures God command us to follow that example. In fact, when Ananias and Sapphira have a, 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 a frightening experience with the Holy Spirit, Peter just simply said, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? That even though people like Barnabas were putting their monies on, at the feet of the apostles, nobody was required to do that. That's why I bristle every time I hear somebody telling people how they should give or what they should do. Because that's none of my business. That's your business with God, what you do with the resources you have. You have to give account to God for what you have. I don't, and I have no idea what's a best choice for you or best decision. In fact, one of the things that Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when he talks about raising funds for the relieving the poverty of the church in Jerusalem, he said, God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we live in an age where we have a cheerful tax collector. But none of us would think that by demanding somebody redistribute what they have, that somehow 
That's what God is asking. But God is calling upon you individually in your heart to respond as God puts it on your heart to respond. And if you can't do it cheerfully, you probably shouldn't do it. If you're giving to something begrudgingly, kind of like, I got to confess, can I share a personal peeve with you? I hate it. I go to the store and they say, would you like to give to pets on parade or something like that? And I'm looking at things and it gives me this choice, $1, $5, $20, $100. Would you like to give something? And I always push $1. But I really like to say, no. I don't want to give to poor, starving pets. Let them go out and earn it like I do. (laughs) Now I'm being exaggerating. I'm being facetious. I understand it. But be honest. Can we talk? (laughs) Can we have a confessional right now? Doesn't that kind of irritate you? I mean, it's like, I feel like if I say no there and go, you, (laughs) you puppy killer. (laughs) You know, just like, I love cats. I love puppies. I told my staff today, I love cat. A light filet with Bernays sauce on it. It's delicious. You know what's wrong with me? (laughs) When I hear some of you groan and go, oh, that actually encourages me. (laughs) No wonder I was a juvenile delinquent, which I carried well into adulthood. But first of all, Christ was the cause, not the effect. Secondly, sharing was their idea, not God's command. And thirdly, it was a short-term solution to an immediate problem, but long-term it didn't work well. Because as they divested them all their resources, they lacked the foundation to continue to support the work. And it had to be ultimately supplemented by the Gentile churches. You know, Luke 10, 7, Jesus put it really simply, he says, the, the, the worker deserves his wages. In fact, in Ephesians 4.28, Paul says, work doing something useful with your own hands that you may have something to share with others who are in need. We have a lot of folks in our congregation who <clears throat> experienced life within the former Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union, had the government workers had a really interesting, basically everybody worked for the government. And they had this interesting way of talking about their relationship. They said, as long as the bosses pretend to pay, we will pretend to work. And one of the things that struck me when I first started going into to Russia just after the Soviet Union collapsed was that if you go into public settings, the workmanship was ferocious. You go into a person's house, and it was immaculate. <laughs> Why? Because they owned it. I'd go in these multi-story flats, you know, I'd go up the elevator, and I'd walk in the elevator and it would smell of urine and vomit and graffiti all over the place and it was like, whoa, my gosh. And you'd go up to this level and you'd knock on the door and they'd open up to you and take you into the flat. It's like you moved from hell to heaven in a moment. Because that was theirs. We have to understand that these are certain human nature issues, but also... The idea that we are part of a collective enforced by government edict is not what the Bible teaches. 
And sadly, we see that idea is being foisted upon young people because they're convinced that they have no future and they can't do anything different. Now, we're in an age where we spend a lot of time beating up on millennials and, and I don't know if we determined what we're going to call the next generation. Are they generous Z? Are they screeners? Are they, uh, you know, psychopaths? I don't know what the term we're going to use for that next generation coming up. <laughs> but I'm believing God for a miracle. I'm believing that that generation is suddenly going to have an awakening and they're going to realize, wait a minute, we've been lied to all our life. We're being conned that we do have a God who watches out and who will lead and who will bless and provide and that I don't have to live in fear of the future because I live in the fear of God. Some people think having a fear of God means you're fearful of the future. No, if you fear God, you don't fear the future because you honor the God who controls the future. And I'm believing that God's just going to move in this generation. I believe the millennials will be the next, next generation of Christians who will rip the cover off the ball for Christ. little baseball metaphor there. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to rightly divide the word of truth. That for many people who don't study it and aren't careful in their reading of it, uh, that is becoming a... a lost ability, Lord. <laughs> that we end up with generations of people who can read, but they're illiterate because all they've read is the stuff that's been fed to them by approved sources. I pray, God, that we would focus on being people who are biblically literate, committed to allowing the Word of God to guide and direct our paths that we would bring our lives into submission to you as our God and as our creator, that you have made us for yourself and that not only are we to live in a way that pleases you, but we, we are also to realize and discover that in pleasing you, we experience our greatest depth of pleasure. I pray, God, for our nation. I pray for our leaders. I pray for the next generation of young people who will be strapped with the burden of our irresponsible spending and self-indulgence. But God, you are a God of miracles. Help us to humble ourselves and look to you instead of looking to governments. We ask you for that help, Lord, and that mercy, that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>